Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Happy Saturday, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get started, next Saturday on the live stream at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, we've got another Lit Manager uh, Q&A with Daniel Seco of Empirical Evidence. He'll be returning to finish up the conversation we started on our very first live stream, uh, which was unceremoniously cut off due to a power outage. So he's going to be answer- finishing that conversation and answering all your questions. Uh, he is one of the most approachable Lit Reps out there, so be sure to stop by. Um, so, and before, also before we get started, if you happen to be listening to this on an audio podcast uh, and find these podcasts helpful, if you're willing to give us a, a good rating, a five-star rating or a nice comment, it would be greatly appreciated. It does help us out tremendously. It doesn't cost you a thing. Uh, and now on to the show. Today, we've got on a literary manager from Bellevue Productions, who is a, a graduate of the University of Michigan and USC's Peter Stark Producing Program. So we know he's got some uh, great credentials there. Uh, before becoming a literary manager, he spent time working for Google, UTA, and 20th Century Fox. As a lit rep, his clients have won the nickel, placed number one on the annual blacklist, had films at Sundance, and staffed writers on shows such as Empire, Robot Chickens, Star Trek Picard, and many, many more. Also, he produced the feature film The Novice, which premiered last week at the Tri- Becca Film Festival and won three awards, including Best U.S. Narrative Feature. That's quite a resume. He is Zach Zucker. Welcome, Zach. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so we, I want to get all into The Novice, how that came about, how you won three awards at Sun or at Tribeca and how you celebrated winning three awards at Tribeca. Uh, but before we do that, you're a first timer here on the podcast. We've had uh, pretty much everybody else at, at Bellevue. So you were the lone holdout, although uh, it's, it's, you were still, you're still newer to uh, a Bellevue than, than the rest. So that's, it's great to finally have you on. Um, but as a first timer, we do have to get the lowdown. Where are you from originally? What did you study before entering entertainment? And what was your impetus for wanting to work in, in Hollywood? Yeah. So again, thank you for having me. I know, I'm, like you said, I'm the last of the Bellevue crew to, to make it out of the podcast. So I'll, I'll try to add some value, you know, uh, although I would definitely encourage all of the listeners and viewers to go check out my colleagues podcast as well. Um, to answer your question, I came from Michigan originally. I first worked, as you mentioned, at Google, but mm-hmm. always loved film and TV. And so about 10 years ago now, I decided to kind of come out here and try to make a go of it. So I knew I wanted to work generally in the like creative side of the business. I didn't really know whether that was as a producer, as an executive. I didn't really know what a literary manager was, to be honest, when I came out here. And so I got very lucky in that I got accepted into the Peter Stark program at USC, which is a phenomenal program. And so I came out here, did that, uh, was also a, an assistant at UTA, was a script reader at UTA, which kind of opened the door for me to not only script coverage, but script development. And I kind of fell in love with that world. And so initially, I think I wanted to be a, a creative executive and go down that path. And so I took a desk at 20th Century Fox once I graduated on the feature side, um, worked for some fantastic executives there that were developing movies at the time like Deadpool and The Martian and Planet of the Apes and got to work on some really cool shows just as a fly in the wall really absorbing you know the the process um and and all the uh, creative and business and politics and you know everything that went into one making one of those giant studio movies and what I really came to learn was although that process is really interesting I kind of wanted to do my own thing Hmm. um you know more so than kind of work my way up through the system and so initially I left to produce independently did that for a couple of years. And that was also a great learning experience. Um, I, I 
got a few things set up and ultimately started working on the novice, which which just got made and, and premiered. Um, did that for two years. And, and again, another learning experience where I, I kind of came to realize I loved half of that job and was good at half of that job and not so much the other half. And the half that I loved and was good at was the creative development side, as opposed to the like physical and line production mm -hmm. side, um, which I have so much respect for people who, you know, enjoy doing that and are good at doing that. I just learned that it wasn't me. And so I decided to make the shift into management and I joined Bellevue in mid 2018. So nearly three years now, and it was definitely the best move that I've made in my career. It's, it's a fantastic environment over there. We're still a very small boutique shop. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a four musketeers mentality, you know, all for one, one for all. Um, and I love working with my clients. I have a fantastic roster and um, working with mostly screenwriters and a few filmmakers as well. Um, to this point, a little bit more on the feature side than TV, but I think the long-term goal for me is to have my business live about 50-50 in mm -hmm. terms of the film and TV split. And yeah, that's kind of my path up to this point. Why is it, is it intentional or is it just based on you gravitating towards each other? Why is it that it seems like Bellevue, especially as opposed to other literary management production companies, which I won't name, are so much more approachable. I'm not saying that you read every script, that you will answer every email, but you're much more uh, out there for writers to talk to, to ask questions, to to be around, to give advice uh, more so than some others. Why do you think that is? And it's not just because you're a boutique. I know a lot of one-man shops who literally have no interest in, in, you know, it's just about the business. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But why is it, do you think, that Bellevue and, and you guys are all so approachable? Yeah, and there are definitely a lot of great managers around town. You know, it's, I, I, we're, we're not no, unique not in this regard, all. although, although yeah. certainly, I think to your point, um, it, it is somewhat rare for a management shop to be so focused on finding and breaking in writers mm -hmm. at that stage of their careers. I think if for, you know, business decisions, it's, and it's fine. I think a lot of managers kind of focus more on people that are a little more established in their careers. Um, I don't want to speak for John and, and, and Jeff, who came on very shortly after Bellevue was founded, but I, I know that ingrained in the DNA of the company is a desire to work with that type of writer and, and break them into the industry. And I think very early on, John and Jeff, um, John Zazerni and Jeff Portnoy, my mm -hmm. colleagues, had success earlier in their careers doing so. And I think kind of came to realize there was a niche that needed to be filled within the management landscape. Mm -hmm. where there wasn't a ton of companies kind of focused on that end of the business. And and thankfully, they were able to achieve success kind of doing that and breaking in a, a crop of really, really talented writers early on. And and so we've just kind of ingrained that into the DNA and, and built the company accordingly. And and so when I came on board, I kind of took that mindset with me, which is great because, you know, I'm still a young guy, still building my career. And so, you know, it's not an easy for me to just call up a showrunner on the phone and say, hey, I'd like to rep you, right? That, that's right. not really where my business is at. And so, um, yeah, was, there's a lot of synergy there in terms of what they had built their careers on doing and what I needed to do as a new manager to start to build my roster. Mm -hmm. And we will get into a conversation about the novice. I do want to ask you a lot about that because, well, congratulations, you won three. Uh, Thank you, you guys so much. Yeah. Won three awards. Very, very unexpected, but which it was is great. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's amazing. I'm glad we're doing this podcast today because the hangover finally went away. Right. Because it was just last <laughs> weekend. Um, yeah. But uh, and if you have questions for Zach, please drop them in in the uh, live chat, and I'll we'll get to them as soon as we can. But we do want to talk about a few things before that. But if you do have questions, please drop them in. And 
you had mentioned you were hoping at some point in the future to sort of balance out your roster 50% uh, feature writers and 50%, you know, and filmmakers and 50% television. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in terms of your approach and also for writers of features versus writers of TV, what your expectations are of these potential clients, like writers approaching you? In terms of um, well, signing for, them or one Yeah, exactly. For signing them yeah. and then, yeah. you know, on from there. Yeah, you bet. So I, I think for features versus TV, the big differentiating factor is on the feature side, and this is a generalization, but I, I think it does matter. So, of course, there are exceptions to this rule. But as a general principle, as a as a new feature writer, you can kind of break in right away, right? Any Anyone can write a feature spec that can sell and get a big director and get made. For the TV side, that is very, very rare early on in your career, right? More likely than not, you're going to have to kind of step-by-step step rise up the staffing hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, it's even though there's a lot of TV that's getting made, it's very, very difficult to get that first staffing job. And so obviously it's, it's a challenge that I, I enjoy and, and work with a lot of new TV writers trying to break them in. But in terms of the difference of perspectives, I think that's the foundation point, right? Where if I'm signing someone on the feature side, I can go and try to get them work and you know sales and and get them into the studio level right away whereas on the, on the tv side it's much more of a long-term process mm. to try to build to that point and so because of that it does affect the mentality of who i i, I want to sign to a degree i mean ultimately it's it's still going to be about voice on the page right uh, I, you know i I'm, I'm in this to represent people whose voice i believe in and want to champion but in terms of the capacity and the types of writers I work with, that certainly is an influence, right? And then once I'm working with someone, the strategy is affected accordingly. So on the TV side, it's far more about early on in that very initial stage of their career, it's far more important to A, find that TV lit agent, hmm. maybe comparatively to the feature side, it's still important on the feature side as well, but TV agents of course are the gateway to staffing in many, in many cases. And thankfully we have great relationships across the board with a lot of really fantastic agents, um, but also the notion of general meetings and samples. And you know, it, on the TV side, it's much more of a numbers game in terms of staffing, right? You're probably need, going to need to submit a new TV writer to 20, 30, 40, 50 shows before they get that first job, with certain exceptions, such as if they're coming out of, you know, NBC Writers on the Verge or one of the big fellowships, um, or they're a writer's assistant who gets promoted internally within a show. There are, there are of course, exceptions, but for a lot of writers, it's it, it really is a tedious and more long-term process to get established on the TV side, whereas on the feature side, if you write a great spec, you know, you're kind of off and running. Mm, right, no, that makes sense. Um, so in terms of film and TV, uh, what are you looking for, uh, when you see a query, how does it differ? For example, like somebody who lives in LA versus someone who lives overseas, how many samples would you expect this individual to have? Again, TV, would you expect them to have more than one pilot versus features is one feature probably enough that, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. On the feature side, definitely one script is enough for, for the reasons I just mentioned. You only need one in order to get going. On the TV side, I mean, I'll sign someone off of one pilot. That being said, I, I think having 
it, it's very, very rare to, to right out of the gate have that one pilot that is like the perfect staffing sample. Mm-hmm. I've seen it, but it's the exception to the rule. And so I would encourage, I mean, I, I can still sign someone off of one pilot, but I would definitely encourage TV writers to um, have that backup sample available because also I think it's more of a thing on the TV side for someone on the producer or executive end to ask for a backup sample mm-hmm. versus the t- versus, versus the feature side where that's not as um, prevalent of, of an occurrence. And so, yeah, I mean, I think to answer your question more directly, I can sign someone off of one great script on either the feature or the TV side. If you're a TV writer, I would definitely encourage you to have um, a great second script at the ready. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and let's jump over to the novice. Uh, let's let's talk about it because, as I will reiterate, screen la- premiered last weekend at Tribeca. You won three awards, including U.S. best best U.S. narrative feature, which is the big one, um, uh, and I guess also best actress in, in cinematography. Yes, shout out to Isabel Furman, our lead, and Todd Barton, our DP. There you go. So, get the get the get the shout outs in. Um, so maybe walk us through the process. How did you get involved with it? Um, how did you help you know per- develop the project and, and and get it produced and push that along? Um, and uh, you know maybe talk us a little bit about sort of again how the whole thing came about. Which involvement was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and this is the first movie that I produced, like Capital P. So I'm obviously very excited for me as well. Yeah. Uh, although that is not my day job now. Uh, but I can kind of give you the, the rundown of the whole process. So it actually started, I think, in a very interesting manner, which is I had come out of Fox as an assistant. I was looking for projects to produce. And one of the resources that was available to me as a young producer was Franklin Leonard's The Blacklist website, mm. um, as opposed to the annual list, right, where you can upload your scripts and have them hosted and, and have industry people go and, and find them. And so I remember very distinctly kind of just browsing through all the log lines that were there because that's ultimately the the gateway, right? That is going to be used that the first gateway, at least to get people to click and read, you know, get the script sent to them. And as I was browsing through these log lines, this one stood out to me and it was basically pitched as whiplash meets Rocky, but in the world of women's college rowing. And rowing was a sport. I'm a sports fan. And yet Mm -hmm. rowing was a sport that I knew nothing about. You know, I'd I'd seen the Olympics, but to be honest, I don't even think I've ever watched rowing in the Olympics. And there's, of course, that one scene in Social Network, right? Right. Um, But that was was probably the extent of my knowledge about Mm -hmm. rowing. And and I had some, you know, friends in college who were rowers, and I knew they got up at the crack of dawn to, Mm -hmm. to go do this crazy sport. Um, but I was curious to learn more. And so I, that, that's what kind of drove me to read the script. And then even in that early stage, um, you know, it was a, an early pass, let's call it the, the heart of it was there and the emotion and the intensity. And, and I was just drawn to the material. And so I emailed this writer, you know, Hey, you don't know me, but I just read your trip on the blacklist. I'm a young producer. I don't even have any credits yet, but you know, here's my background. Uh, give me like, I want to meet you. And so I meet the writer, Lauren Hathaway, not even knowing at that time that she wanted to direct. Mm. And so we had coffee in Santa Monica and, and she pulls out her, um, I don't even know what it's called, one of those like iPads, I guess the Microsoft iPad that you can surface, that you can mm. write on. And I'd never seen one of those before. I was like, okay, that's really cool. And, uh, and she starts pitching me her vision as a director. And this kind of came at me out of the blue. And, you know, normally you meet writer, first time writers, and they're saying, I want to direct. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. So does everyone. But she was different. Mm. And she had a 
brilliant vision for the project and very detailed, meticulous in not only the creative aspect, but the technical aspect as well, which really impressed me for someone who hadn't directed really anything before. She had more of a post-production background, although she worked, to be fair, on some really, really big films. Mm -hmm. And so I left this meeting so impressed, you know, both on the page, the vision, all that, and, and thought about it and called her. And I was like, please, please let me you know, give me a chance to do this. I know I don't have the resume for it, but I have the ambition and I think I have the skill. And to her credit, she said yes, and she gave me that chance. And even at the initial stage, she said, you know, I'd like you to meet these other producers that I've worked with before. Um, and I sat down with them and we hit it off and ultimately decided to partner on the movie. Um, these, these great young producers as well named Ryan Hawkins and, and Al Engeman and, uh, and quickly built out the team from there. And so um, eventually we brought another production company called H2L, also really talented, common, common theme, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then work together to find the money and find the talent. And, you know, oftentimes in the indie film world, it's chicken and the egg scenario, right? Right. Um, money wants talent, talent wants money. And so, I mean, thankfully we had the secret sauce, which was a really great script mm -hmm. and a great filmmaker to pitch her vision. And not only that, she had a phenomenal lookbook, probably the best lookbook I'd ever seen, which really helped. Um, in terms of a proof of concept, she had one. It, it wasn't your standard proof of concept. It was more of a technical proof of concept than like a creative one. Mm. It was basically just some some non-linear narrative footage of, of like how she would film on the water, which as anyone who's, you know, filmed on the water knows, is very, very difficult to execute. Mm -hmm. And and so even on like a zero budget um, shoot, she was able to show how she would pull that off. And so to make a long story short, we eventually, you know, found some financiers. Um, UTA was instrumental in, in helping connect us to talent. Um, and then we found a great actress. And I'll, I'll give a, a quick side story, which is kind of crazy in hindsight how everything played out. We, we ended up casting this, um, this young actress who we really believed in. And she was coming off of uh, starring in a hit show and about we were like in the middle of like negotiating the deal and this is like i don't know six weeks out maybe of, of production in the fall of 2019 and we get a call from her agent we're so sorry but she just got cast as like the second lead in like a giant movie mm -hmm. and uh and we were like oh shit, what do we do right because now we're in a position where we either have to rush to recast or push until her next window which would have been spring 2020 hmm. and you know there were other considerations as well we shot in canada it's winter it's cold we're going to be shooting at the crack of dawn on the water like safety like you know all these issues like we were kind of tr still trying to figure out in that pre-production phase or entering pre-production and at the end of the day we were like screw it we have the money we have the window you know let's just make this work and so we very quickly recast the role and thank god that we landed on this super talented actor thing Isabel Furman who had started an orphan she was in the hunger games had been in some other things as well and she ended up really making the role her own clearly you know and and right. killed it and uh as it turns out had we decided to push spring 2020 we might not have a movie at all right. so <laughs> it all worked out yeah yeah and it's 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 funny because the past couple of weeks on the podcast we had Ian Shore and John Salzerni, uh, and they were talking about because uh, their film uh, Infinite was just recently released on Paramount Plus, which is a huge budget film, and then yours premiered uh, this past weekend, uh, which is obviously a smaller budget film, uh, and 
So what I wanted to to mention to you or ask you about is writers who want to also direct filmmakers, should they, how much should they consider budget? Because we get that asked a lot. Should I, I want to direct. How much should I, you know, and we know how hard it is for a first timer to get the green light to say, okay, we will allow you to direct this having not directed anything. Uh, What should sort of those emerging filmmakers, screenwriter slash directors, consider when they're writing the their the feature that they want to direct as a first-time director? Yes, I, I think they should be very concerned about budget because that is going to be the biggest impediment, right? You got to raise the money somehow. And it, first of all, it's a lot easier to raise 100,000 than it is to raise a million. It's a lot easier to raise 1 million than 10 million, right? And, and then from the industry perspective, risk mitigation, right? Mm-hmm. That's a huge factor when you're talking to financiers, studios, et cetera. Um, it, is, it is inherently risky to bet on a first-time filmmaker. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge advocate for first-time filmmakers and, and work with you know some filmmakers that I'm still trying to get that first feature made. Mm-hmm. But seeing the barriers right, that we come up against, it is very, very difficult to get past that initial barrier. And so I would say two things. First, be very cognizant with budget to be more specific. I would try to cap your scripts. I know it's difficult if you're a writer, not necessarily with a production background, but I would try to at least connect with some producers who can give you a reasonable estimate or do your own homework. Maybe, you know, try to see some movies that have been made in that budget to try to adjust accordingly. I would say about $3 million is Mm -hmm. probably the ceiling I would aim for as a first time filmmaker with certain exceptions, such as, you know, if you're a giant writer already, right? Or if you're coming from like, you know, an A-list music video director, there are exceptions, but if you're like, let's say a writer or someone coming out of film school, someone at that stage of their career trying to get that first film made, I would say $3 million is roughly the ceiling. It used to be a little bit more. It used to be like five back in the, you know, home video DVD heyday. But now that that revenue stream has kind of gone away, like it's it's shrunk a little bit. Um, And I would also be cognizant of, um, genre right which, which sounds obvious but in other words like if you're if you're writing a very heartfelt drama that's fantastic and worthwhile and of course we need dramatists in this business it is going to be a harder path right to mm. get the financing to get that made versus if you're writing something to direct that's more in the like you know elevated thriller space or something that right is a little more um sellable Mm -hmm. uh, on that end of the business again that's not to say that drama or one of those other genres isn't worthwhile but you need to factor that into the consideration right and so yeah i would say for first-time filmmakers budget is a genre of very important considerations um and then your strategy on 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 proving that you can direct is also very important right so for lauren she had this fantastic lookbook i think ultimately that's what sold a lot of the decision makers um, on her, she had a proof of concept. It, it, it wasn't designed to be like the best proof of concept ever. It was more just designed to show like, I can do this from a technical perspective. But right. generally speaking, I do think a great proof of concept is really, really helpful for first time filmmakers. As far as like what that entails, I probably would advise to do something a little different in most cases, which is the Damien Chazelle whiplash approach, right? Where you essentially make a short film Maybe it's a film in your movie or it's some sort of, you know, condensed version of your movie or the first scene or whatever it may be. Right. 
um, Promising Young Woman, right? The short film was like, I think the first scene of that movie, right? Mm -hmm. um, something along those lines to essentially show that, yes, I can direct actors, I can direct narrative, I can, you know, showcase camera movement, all those technical and creative ends um, to kind of prove that you can do it. I, I think that's really important as well. So I guess that'd be my advice for writers looking to direct that first film. Mm -hmm. And for writers out there, filmmakers out there, who may have a short film that's not necessarily a proof of concept, not necessarily based on their script. How was that? Would that fill in at all if they had a good lookbook or something like that? Or do you recommend you got to go out and shoot a proof of concept that's related to the actual film that you want to get made, that screenplay? I would say most of the time it probably needs to be related. Yeah. Um, there are exceptions, such as my colleague John and I have a client who was able to do that successfully with a short film that was not a proof of concept. Granted, that got into Sundance. Mm. So that got him enough, you know, buzz off of that, that it kind of serviced that uh, that need. Um, you know, if, if you have a short film that goes viral, right, that is on alter and gets 10 million views or duster, like something like that, right? right. Um, you know, I, I think it needs to be more than like a Vimeo staff pick, which is great. I'm not discounting that, but that's right. probably not sufficient in terms of um, showcasing that you can do this right mm -hmm. at that level. So I would say at the end of the day, I would err on the side of trying to make that proof of concept that is directly connected to your project, right? Gotcha. It's certainly a much easier sell to financiers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you have a brilliant short film idea that, you know, is kind of like a short story, right? That is just like stands alone and that you feel like you can either get into a top tier festival or go viral or something like that, then, I mean, go for it. But I would say even then the odds are probably a little more stacked against you as opposed to making that short film that is directly connected to your feature. Mm -hmm. And what would be better or at least more impressive to financiers having a viral hit, something that gets millions of views on, you know, one of these platforms or something that is an award winner, something that won an actual award at a major festival, a best short film at Sundance or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you're talking like top, top tier festival like Sundance, and sure. I think that's clearly very, very impressive. Um, short of that, I think it's probably a bit subjective and, gotcha. and probably a little contextual in the genre as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I did want to talk more about concept, which is something that we had been discussing before coming on air. Uh, but we do have some questions that are starting to pile up in the, uh, the chat. So let me run a few of these by you. Uh, Jordan Simon asks, what genres do you tend to gravitate towards as a reader or viewer? Wow. As a viewer, I'm pretty agnostic. I mean, when I'm tuning out at the end of the night and turning on my TV to watch something with my wife, like it's all over the map. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a news junkie. I watch everything from very highbrow content to the lowest of lowbrow content. So, you know, as far as like entertainment value of anything in terms of the business side, I mean, look, it kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about drama versus like elevated thriller, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not to say one is better than the other. Um, I mean, maybe at the end of the day, drama is the highest form of, of cinema, but it is a more difficult path, right? To get um, traction as a writer, if you're writing in a, let's call it less sellable space. And so that certainly has to have an impact for me if I'm considering signing someone, because at the end of the day, this is a business. That being said, I think, you know, the cream does rise to the top. And, and if someone has a brilliant dramatic script, of course, I, I want to read it and, and I'll work with them off of that. 
Um, I mean, I would classify the novice as a drama, mm-hmm. um, you know, but as a writer, and this kind of ties into that, actually that concept thing as well, which I'm sure we'll get into it, you know, later, later on. But I think you do have to be cognizant of um, the, the person at the other end of the table, whether it's initially a manager or an agent, later on down the line, a producer, a financier, an executive, whatever that may be they're all working at businesses, right? And and they need to make money when they are um, financing or producing a movie or whatever that may be. And so as a writer, I would say it's not, again, not to say nothing's worth, that the drama or any of those kind of less sellable genres aren't worthwhile, but um, if, you're, if you're presenting a project that is going to be harder for them to achieve success in on their side of the table, then the bar is inherently higher, right? In order to succeed, you know, if you're writing an elevated thriller, it can be decently good and you might find success with it. If you're writing a period drama, it better be freaking phenomenal in order to find success with it. And so uh, I would take that into account, right? In terms of just knowing where the bar is um, in, in what you're writing. And, and so to answer that question directly, that's something that I pay attention to, but it doesn't entirely inform my decision. Ultimately, it's still gotta be on the page. Right, no, absolutely. Um, Matthew Lombardo, who's one of our great scripts and scribes mods, uh, says, is there any value in a writer who is not a director querying a short film script? The honest answer is probably not. Uh, Unfortunately, I think that for short films, it's usually the director who's going to benefit from that, or maybe an actor, actress, um, probably not the producer, probably not the writer. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jack Cross says, hello, Kevin and Zach. Well, hello, Jack. Um, question, does an emerging writer with one feature sale have a better chance at staffing? It's kind of interesting. It's both sides. It is an interesting question. Yeah, I I think there is certainly uh, an effect in terms of the give and take where if you have enough momentum on the feature side, it can help you get staffed or eventually sell a show on the TV side. Um, one feature credit it'd probably have to be a really good credit. You know, if, if, if you wrote a hit Sundance movie, like, yes, that will help you get staffed. If you wrote a movie that no one read or saw, I don't know. I mean, if effectively that just serves as a staffing example, which kind of puts you in the same pool as everyone else. So I think I would say usually no, unless there's an exceptional circumstance, such as, you know, a giant spec sale that makes the trades, right. Or a hit movie. Right. Uh, Lucas Kendall says, Kevin, I love this kid. I would love to work with him. I need him to watch my sci-fi short. Can you ask him to give me a shot? So you've officially been asked to give Lucas Kendall a shot. Um, (laughs) Sure, sure, Lucas. Hit me up. (laughs) um, KP Only says, how does he think a newbie screenwriter can make the most of markets like AFM or MIPCOM? That's actually kind of good. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the reality of the answer is uh, that's more for producers than writers, I think. I mean, I'm also somewhat ignorant. I've never been to AFM, so I'm probably not the the best person to ask this question to. I haven't heard of a lot of writers having success just like kind of shopping their spec screenplays at, at a film market. Um, now, if you have a package, you know, let's say you're writing and producing, that's a somewhat rare circumstance, but, you know, you're friends with some well-known actor or a director that's meaningful or something like that, okay, then that's a different equation. Mm-hmm. But um if it's just a a spec script probably not the right um place to find traction what i would say um about afm i don't really know mip but about afm if you're a writer and you're in the area if you happen to be in santa monica there i don't know about how it's done virtually but if you're there a lot of 
producers do uh, congregate in the lobbies, in the, at the hotel bars and things like that. Uh, and I have seen writers pitching scripts and things like that. But just know that they it's really a genre place. Like if you have an elevated drama that you think, oh, this could win. Sun-, I mean, they're not interested. They're interested in, again, genre pieces that they would produce for low budgets that they could sell internationally, that kind of thing. So for the most part, um, you're probably going to be better suited if you have a script that's of that vein. But again, it's all I don't think it's it's very uh, common to go there and like rent a room and, and pitch to producers your script. But if you want to go and, and network, there's probably plenty of opportunities to do that if you're a good networker and you have a script that probably fits what they're looking for. Yeah, that, that's a great point. If you're if you're a phenomenal schmoozer, then right. go to a bar nearby and see who you know, stops by. Yeah, and a lot of them, even producers who don't have films in AFM, who don't, you know, buy the room, buy the, the, the you know, all the booth kind of thing. But, you know, there are a lot of them are just lounging around looking for buyers in the lobby and that kind of thing. And so if you are a, a, you have a, a script and you're finding some of those producers, I mean, there's potential there. It's probably a lot of work. And I wouldn't say it's probably the best use of time if you're not a great, great networker. But, you know, maybe. Um, yeah. Let's see here. Amanda Kaur asks, would you be more inclined to sign uh, someone who had a diverse background of work, plays, published essays and TV scripts? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it still needs to be on the page in terms of a pilot or a feature screenplay. Um, there are a couple exceptions, probably plays. I, I, I have signed someone off of a phenomenal play before. Um, I, I think the industry as a whole is a little more accommodating to playwrights and the notion of trying to break someone in who has you know, at least somewhat of a track record and as, a, as a playwright into the film or TV spaces. Um, I think the industry looks at like, for example, short stories or articles or kind of other essays, other, you know, things more as source material than an actual sample, right? Or, you know what I mean? So I I think like if someone writes a great essay, um, actually, that's kind of a rare, I, I don't think I've seen like, an, I've never met anyone off of an essay before, but let's say a short story, you know, that, that's a little more common. Let's say you have a great short story. Um, yeah, I, I, I might want to meet you and say, okay, great. If you want to write this, if you want to be a screenwriter, then but you still you still have to show me that you have a great sample right at that point you right. know i'm not gonna I'm not gonna take a leap of faith that someone who wrote six pages of a short story can then turn that into you know a 90 page feature mm. right you kind of need to see that right uh let's see uh jordan simon also asks what makes a great story or script to you broad question but good question i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah look it it's just ultimately voice on the page you know um and it's it's somewhat rare, I, I think, to find material that really speaks to you. I mean, that being said, like I love broad comedies. You know, I, there there's some people in the century, by the way, that don't. You know, that that won't read broad comedies. I, I love broad comedies. That being said, um, it is very difficult to those made side note, but um, it doesn't matter what genre it is. I think for me, the distinguishing factor is um, voice on the page, which is very very rare to find, especially when you're looking at you know writers trying to break in. Um, and also writers that, at least to a certain degree, have an intuition of, I don't want to say commerciality, it doesn't mm. necessarily have to be like a big movie, but at least writing for an audience other than yourself, right? right? If you're writing something that, I mean, I think I've heard other people use this uh, as, a, as a litmus test, and I think it's actually a really good idea. 
Um, if you're thinking of a concept and you're not sure, like, is this the one, go pitch it to your friends and family, right? Ask them, would you pay to see this in a movie theater? And if the answer is no, probably not the right idea for you to write, right? Because if you're writing that and sending it, querying, sending it to managers, agents, we're, that's probably not going to be the one that stands out to us either. And so I would say, um, again, this, this is going to be a recurring theme, you know, tying concept into other, other answers, other situations, but I think concept matters ultimately though, voice on the page. Mm -hmm. And we will definitely get into concept because we definitely want (laughs) to talk about that. Uh, but we still have a few more questions here. Let's see here. Uh, Todd Klinger says, hi, Zach and Kevin. Um, hello, Todd, uh, Zach, John, Oh, Zach, Zach, this is a question for you. John stated that he's the one reading all the incoming query emails. Under what circumstances would he direct a particular query your way? I think that's a question for John. (laughs) I mean, I think if you put Um, Zach's name in it. Yeah, what he he means by that is if if you're querying info at bellyprods.com, that goes to him. Right, and if you put Zach's name in it, hey, Zach, or please forward to Zach, I'm sure John would forward it to Zach. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Let's see here. Oh, and he also asks, are all prospective clients discussed amongst all the managers at Bellevue? Uh, Not necessarily. Um, I mean, I think the reality of the situation is we're pretty busy. So that would, that'd be pretty time consuming. I mean, we get a lot of query letters and, and not only that, but we're constantly being proactive as well in terms of, you know, screenplay contests mm-hmm. and the blacklist and Coverfly and roadmap and all these other services and getting referrals to us. And so there are so many, it's such a high volume of writers looking for reps that cross our desks somehow each week. It, it would be very difficult for us to, you know, kind of discuss each one in turn. I think it's more, the inverse of that, which is if every once in a while, if we find someone or something that really stands out, um, you know, in certain circumstances, we might share. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see here. Robert Thompson asks, what would you make of a screenwriter who wants to be involved in the production of something they've written? I, mean, I think every screenwriter wants to be involved in the production. Ideally, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a little contextual in terms of if they're able to, um, I, I mean, that's to be, to be honest, that's probably not a problem to to worry about until you actually have a film that's going into production. Right, right, and yeah. you know, obviously, yeah. as a as a writer, especially a first time writer, your options are sort of limited. You're at sort of the whims of the 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 producers and the filmmaker or whatever. But yeah, uh, but have no doubt, your your manager, your rep, if they are good, they will try to fight for you at that point. But uh, let's see here, uh, Lauren. Oxner, Oxner. Hopefully, I pronounced your name right, Lauren. Lauren Oxner uh, says, "How do you get an agent to give you the time of day? Uh, you read your screenplay samples when you haven't sold anything yet. It's in the log line, right? It's it's in the concept. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, bio as well. But um, you know, if, like if if let's say someone is a military veteran and they're writing in that world and they can say you know i come from a place of authenticity i know this world i was you know i was a a spy for the cia or i was an olympic gymnast or like whatever that may be like yeah there's there's certainly value there but i think for most writers the answer is simply it's got to be on the log line right because right. that is ultimately what we are going that, that that is the barrier of entry right that is what we are going to judge whether or not we want to read the script by and then once we're reading the script then of course it has to be on the page mm-hmm. um k Wu says fun fun throwaway question how many pandemic related script queries were sent bellevue's way in the past year and a half <laughs> 
Not as many as you'd think. I think thankfully writers got the message early on that people did not want to read pandemic mm. scripts. Um, there's been a few, you know, I think it, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those like too soon things, right? Where it's like right. five years from now, it might be viable, but right now it's a little raw. Right. right. <laughs> uh, I just know a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I've seen more than a few lit reps post, stop sending me, you know, scripts on, you know, uh, pandemics or virus outbreaks. I'm not interested. But I mean, let me put it this way. Like if you're, if you're writing something because, you know, it's like front page news every day chances are a lot of other people are writing that same thing, right? Like how many people do you think started writing about GameStop when that blew up on Reddit, right? Like I guarantee you it was like dozens of writers and then there were like three or four like big projects, right? And both the, the um, scripted and docu space that it, like immediately got set up across town, mm -hmm. right? And so my advice is always don't look for like the big front page headline, look for the diamond in the rough, right? Mm -hmm. Look for the story in the local paper that no one else has seen. Right. Uh, let's see here. Um, Alexander Morello says, would you consider signing international writers from outside the U.S.? Also, do you prefer features or TV series? I love the invaluable information you guys uh, share with us. So thank you kindly. Well, thank you, Alexander. And I'll leave oh, it Thank to you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, look, I, I definitely would consider someone who doesn't live in the U.S. And I rep a couple of people that are based in Europe. I would consider someone who lives anywhere more on the feature side than TV, right? Mm -hmm. TV... I just, I don't know, I don't work in the business of TV in other countries. Um, features, it would have to be like, I guess, at least English, <laughs> you know, for because uh, the people that I are in contact with and and obviously I don't, you know, speak out other, anyway, obvious, that's all obvious. But in terms of the basic question, yeah, I would definitely consider someone who lives elsewhere. I will say the bar is probably a little bit higher, right? Because it's not gonna be as easy when we're in person again to come in for meetings and you know the time zone difference and things like that it's not to say that it's enough to disqualify someone but it does make it a little more challenging and so i would say um the answer is yes and if you have some success in a local film market you know that just helps build your case right yeah, yeah. absolutely um famous motion picture says hi kevin you skipped over me twice may i ask why i haven't skipped over anything famous motion pictures this is the first comment i've seen from you uh, i don't know if language or if one of the mods or something or maybe it just i haven't seen your comment so please leave a question again and i'll try to get to it i haven't seen any anything from you famous motion pictures so uh yeah feel free to drop it in again so uh we'll get to that um there are a couple more questions but i do want to get to concept before uh too long because there's so many questions in the uh chat that sort of relate to it uh whether it's you know what makes you really like what makes a great story or uh uh you know different things questions that we've been asked uh relate to concept and i think that that's something that newer writers emerging writers oftentimes overlook in terms of they write what they've want to write they write what their heart tells them to write which i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but again we've been talking before about the importance of concept uh off camera so can you explain why is it important for writers to consider their work conceptually and how does that increase their chances of getting a read within the industry yeah so it is the interconnecting tissue to a lot of the answers to these questions you know and the basis was i i posted something on twitter a couple weeks ago that um, you know, kind of sparked some, some conversations, which is 
a lot of writers ask about what makes a great query letter? You know, how do I get signed, right? And the form and the process and the protocol, I mean, that's all of course important, but at the end of the day, none of that matters if you don't have a strong enough concept that gets someone excited enough to read whatever it is you're pitching them, right? Mm -hmm. And so effectively what that means is if you're communicating through email or you know a screenplay contest or the blacklist website or whatever that may be, right? What we have to go by is the log line. Um, it, it's, it's not the elevator pitch, it's not the first 10 pages, that's the barriers, the log line, right? And so directly tied into this notion of concept. And in a world where there are literally hundreds of thousands of writers trying to break into the industry, right? I mean, go to Reddit's, you know, our screenwriting. There's a million people that are members of that, right? We get bombarded with query letters. Um, every time there's a screenplay contest, we, you know, here are the hundred quarter finalists, right? Like, well, we don't have time to read all of this material that crosses our desk. It, it's probably 1%, the top one or 2% that's getting read. Okay, well, what does that mean, right? What are we, what's the criterion that we're judging that top one or 2% by? It's concept, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. And, and so if I only have time to read, you know, five or 10 scripts in a given weekend, I'm going to pick the ones that are the most interesting to me, right? And then conversely, when I'm sending scripts out to producers, to studio executives, to agents to try to get them to read, they're only going to read the most interesting ones to them, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, the lesson that I would try to encourage writers to think about is, yes, it's important to know like what makes a good query letter. None of that matters if your concept isn't strong enough to get read. And if you're checking all the boxes when it comes to the form and protocol and you're still not getting responses, I would look inwardly and, and really think about what it is you're writing and is that strong enough to really stand out from a really, really crowded field, right? And so this isn't to discourage writers in any way, it is to challenge you when you go to write your next thing. Is th Think about this, is the concept strong enough to beat out 90 to 98% of all the other scripts that float into the ether, right? That end up getting submitted or crossing our desk because that's what it takes to get read. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't want to discourage anybody. I think any, any given writer can do this, but it takes a lot of patience and hard work to come up with that concept that is strong enough. And so for, for any writer out there who's struggling to get responses from reps, I would say, that's probably the issue, right? It, it's one thing if you're getting responses and getting passes, well, that's an execution issue, right? Okay, then the writing on the page is strong enough. Focus more on that. Right. If you're not getting read in the first place, it's a concept issue. Right, absolutely. And uh, just uh, as an aside, uh, I pulled up uh, Reddit screenwriting. And again, don't assume that every writer, not every writer is on Reddit screenwriting, but there's 1,083,878 uh, screenwriters on Reddit screenwriting. So that's part of your competition <laughs> to get read. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people and uh, there's an old adage and I don't know if it's true or not. I've never actually done the math, but it feels true, which is that it's uh, there. there's more players in the NFL than there are active feature screenwriters in the WGA, right? Meaning mm. it is it is an easier path to becoming a professional athlete in one of the big four sports than it is to becoming a working professional screenwriter. Right. Again, I don't want to discourage anybody, but you, you, this is a business, right? And you do have to know at the end of the day, that is what like beating out that number of people is what it takes in order to sustain a career. And so I would kind of put this, you know, as a, as a positive spin on it, like there's a challenge, you know, you got to rise to the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what 
it's such a difficult question to answer. It's it's one of those things like uh, what is voice, but in terms of concept, what, how, other than asking friends and family, which if you have, you know, friends and family who love you, they'll probably tell you it's great, even if it may not be. How do emerging writers sort of vet their concept? to, to yeah, see so, if it's interesting to people other than their family, which who, who will probably tell them that's great, even if it's not. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first half of that is like, okay, what is a good concept, right? And mm-hmm. and to try, try to describe it, anything I say is going to be somewhat vague and, and nebulous, but to try to solidify what makes a good concept, let me put it this way. It's something that feels loud and interesting, right? So again, when dozens and dozens of blog lines are being thrown my way, What's the one that makes me stop and say, holy shit, I've mm-hmm. never seen that. I've never been pitched this before, and it's interesting, and I want to read it, right? That can mean a number of different things. If you're writing in the comedy space, it could be a super com- commercial way into a story that doesn't feel like the same rom-com that we see you know, pitched every day of the week, right? Or if you're writing in the drama space, you know, if you're writing in, in the biopic space, let's say, um, it's probably not enough, to be honest, to say, like, this is a script about the first person in history who did this, right? Okay, well, there's a lot of scripts about the first person in history to do something. So what is it that they did that's so interesting that I'm going to say, oh my God, I want to read about the first person that did X as opposed to Y, right? Mm -hmm. That's what makes a loud concept. Um, You know, if you're writing in the thriller space, okay, there's a lot of it's it's a good space to write in, but there's a lot of sci-fi thrillers that are pitched, right? I get pitched a lot of some variation of, you know, some variation of like alien, right? Or thing or something like that, right? So if you're writing in that space, like, okay, cool, that's commercial, but that's not sufficient to be a great concept. You need that extra element that makes it stand out from the other, you know, dozens of scripts that are over the course of a year, I'm going to be, I'm going to see, right, that are somewhat similar to yours, right? Mm -hmm. And so ultimately tied into concept is the word hook, right? So conceptual hook, that's what we're looking for, which doesn't necessarily mean quote unquote, high concept or high budget, right? It can be a real, it can be a one location movie. You could still have a great conceptual hook. Look at some of the most successful horror movies that have come out of the last couple of decades, right? A lot of those movies, you could pitch them as like really small micro or low budget movies. But if you have a great hook, if you have a great monster, um, it's, you know, there you go, you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think knowing that is half the battle, right? So then how do you vet that? I would say, yes, certainly ask, you know, do that litmus test of your friends and family. Hey, okay, this is my idea. Would you pay to see that movie theater? But I would also do homework, right? If this is your job, then yes, we're all, you know, creative people, but you still need to be a little bit analytical in how you approach it in terms of doing the research of what's working for other people, mm. right? If if I think I have a great conceptual hook and I'm writing a period Western, well, you know, if you do the research, you'll find there aren't very many period Westerns that sell, right? And so even though you might have a unique hook, it might not be the best script to get read. And so I would encourage all the writers out there to track the trades, track the annual blacklists, right? Because that's a good litmus test of writers that are breaking into the industry and having success doing that. And you'll find patterns, right? Mm-hmm. If you go back and look the last 10 years of the annual blacklist, that's a lot of scripts. Just focus on like the top 10 or 15 each year you'll find patterns emerge, right? And I guarantee you, you'll find those concepts tend to be very loud, right? And right. when you, once you look at a hundred log lines that all worked 
and they're all somewhat let's call them loud right the like the secret sauce will will start to you know reveal itself right um i would also track the trades track what's selling the spec market is kind of dead there's a few big spec sales each year it's not often but look beyond that what are the films that are getting into the major festivals what are the films that are attracting major talent packages right um i would track all that and, and again i think the idea is to try to pick out patterns so that you realize oh, okay this subgenre or this character type gets pitched all the time right maybe maybe it's still working and it's mm -hmm. still in trades maybe you're like you know what there's 10 spy shows that got pitched in the last year maybe i don't need to write a spy show right, right. or if i am i'm gonna need to figure out a conceptual hook that's distinct from the other 10 spy shows that have been pitched and so yeah i would encourage even the most creative minds to think somewhat analytically and doing that homework um to try to give yourself a better understanding of where your concept lies in relation to all the other subjects out there. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've spoken to a, a myriad of lit reps, obviously on the podcast, and many of them say they will read the log line. And if the log line doesn't catch them, it doesn't matter what else is in your, your email. Uh, it doesn't matter what else is in your query. It's, it's, it's a no. If, if that log line doesn't catch them, you know, that's the yeah, most it, important it's true. Things. I mean, if I'm on the fence, I might look to the bio, right? Mm. Okay. Does it, did this person, go to a top film school right. or have a really interesting life experience or, you know, something like that. Um, but even then it's, it's still gotta be in the log line. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and, and talking, talking about something that is familiar, which I think is, is comforting, whether it's again, a spy piece, it's, you know, something that, that is, uh, you know, uh, fairly well known and established, uh, you know, whether it's a genre or a specific thing, um, a subject matter, but get coming at it from a different perspective, I think, is is what you had brought up is super important. And one log line, I don't remember the exact log line, but one uh, that stuck out to me that I still remember to this day was from Cole Haddon, who uh, created the NBC series Dracula. And it was called Nottingham. It was about the sheriff of Nottingham. But his twist was that the sheriff of Nottingham was also Robin Hood. He was the same person. It wasn't just about the, you know, oh, let's look like an anti-hero kind of thing. It's because he felt bad of having to take everything from the poor people, he created his alter ego, which was Robin Hood, to give it back, which to me is brilliant. I mean, that absolutely, yeah. because it had never been done that way before, I don't think. So, absolutely. I mean, that to me, that checks two really important boxes, which is A, to your point, it, 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 it feels different, right? Okay, you've mm -hmm. been pitched a million versions of Robin Hood before, but you've never been pitched that one, right? Right. And so there you go. That inherently made it stand out. And, and that's interesting, right? You, you're pitching that to me. And I, in, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, wow, shit, I would want to read that. Right. right? That, that's a cool version of that story. And then secondly, um, this is more of a thing on the feature side, but it, it touches on what I would call cultural IP, mm. right? Which is essentially free IP that you have access to because it's public domain, right? right? And in a world where IP is, Everything. you know, paramount, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and every, like, it's it's so crazy, like, a mediocre article or short story has more value than the best spec script. Should it be that way? No. Is it that way? Yes. Right. And so knowing that, I think if you can kind of play into that a little bit, right, whether you're, you know, optioning something yourself and saying, hey, look, I have, I, I own this, right? I'm the only one who owns this article um, or using that kind of free public domain IP to your advantage, again, in a way that feels distinct, you know, that can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... I want to jump back to some of these questions here uh, in the chat. 
Uh, it says famous motion pictures message retracted. So I don't know. And then he goes on to say, I hope it went through this time. So famous motion pictures, your message still wasn't received. It says message retracted on my screen here. So maybe try again. Uh, sorry about that. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why we're not getting your messages. Um, Scott, let's see here. Uh, Scott Jeschke, hopefully I pronounced your name right, Scott. On the Q&A with John Zalzirny, uh, he suggested I ask you this question. Is it worthwhile for a writer-director to query a finished short film, or are there better ways to get it in front of reps? If the short film is finished and you're a writer-director... Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to query that, um, you know, I, I will say though, it is somewhat, somewhat rare for reps to respond to short films that haven't already achieved some level of success. Um, again, is like, is that, is that thing right? No, it's probably, probably not the best thing, but, but it's a real thing, you know, and there are a lot of short films and a lot of them are bad, unfortunately. Right. If you, if yours is great, fantastic, you know, that's the one to break through the clutter. Um, I would say yes, but here's the other thing, like short films, right? It's really hard to like pitch a great concept with a short film, right? It, it, like, in other words, like you, you look at short stories, there are another number of phenomenal short stories that would be very difficult to pitch, right? In one or two sentences because they rely on a big twist or an, a sense of atmosphere, right? Things that aren't inherently easy to pitch in one or two sentences. Mm -hmm. And so Therefore, what I'm trying to say here is I think it's a little bit more difficult to do it that way, not impossible. Um, but I would say the more traditional pathway to success, if you have a finished short, um, look, festivals, the top festivals take point, literally 0.1% of the shorts that are, uh, that apply, you know, so, okay, how do you work around them? Well, try to make it go viral, uh, obviously easier said than done, but there are other mediums that can help filmmakers to that end, right? Vimeo staff picks, um, mm. short of the week, film shortage, Amaletto, um, Gunpowder and Skies, Dustin Alter platforms, uh, etc. You know, and so my advice would be to try to use the um, mediums and channels and platforms that already exist to help short filmmakers achieve success. And then once you've attained a certain level of success, then it becomes a lot easier to then turn around and say hey, look, I have a short film. It's got 5 million views. You mm -hmm. know, people watch it if that's the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I skipped over one, so let's go back. Ted Klinger uh, says, John has made it very clear that he's not fond of road trip movies. Uh, believe me, <laughs> I come on every week asking about it. Do you have any aversion to road trip movies? I mean, I wouldn't say I have an aversion to road trip movies. Like, sure, some of my favorite movies are road trips. I will say it is more difficult to find success pitching road trip movies in Hollywood. Um, again, it's not to say that I'm closed minded to that, but I just actually signed someone off of a road trip movie oh. last year. It was a nickel finalist to be fair. And it was a fantastic script. And, mm -hmm. and not only that, not only was it a road trip movie, but it was a really unique angle into a road trip movie. It was, I'll just, I'll just say what it was really talented writer named David Turner. Um, the script was basically inspired by this real life law in the state of Nebraska that got passed that basically allowed to discourage abortion. It allowed mothers to. Uh, legally abandon their children mm. at fire stations mm. um, to, of course, encourage adoption instead. The problem with the law was they forgot to add an age cutoff. And so oh. the premise of this movie is a newly widowed stepfather has basically had it with his teenage daughter, unruly teenage daughter, and decides to take a road trip to Nebraska to legally abandon her at a fire station. And of course, along the way, you know, they bond and whatever. But 
um, to me, I was like, that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, it is. Right? It is. And, and so that kind of lured me into read that script. Um, so all that's to say that I'm open to reading road trip movies, but you better have a great concept. <laughs> mm -hmm. What is yeah. it you think about road trip movies that makes it a harder sell? Is it because they're, they all seem to be the same coming of age story kind of thing, or is it something else? Yeah, it's something like that. I mean, I think they, they just tend to feel very similar, mm -hmm. um, with obvious exceptions. And so I think the bar is just a little bit higher and, and also they're not the most commercial movies, right? Um, again, it's not to say that they, you know, should or shouldn't be made, but how many road trip movies grows a hundred million dollars, right? Not, not a lot. And so I think the, from, from the business end, it is oftentimes tougher to see a pathway to success again, unless there's extenuating circumstances, such as a great concept, a great package, you know, um, a, a unique twist on the genre, right? Um, I forget the name of the movie. There's a, there's a really cool road trip horror movie that came out in like the two thousands, um, I'm totally blank on the example, but you know, it would, point being is if you're going to add a genre twist or something like that, that helps distinguish it from the mm. pack. That, that, yeah. That's another you know tool that could be useful to you. Yeah, do an old west road trip movie or a sci-fi road trip movie or a... <laughs> maybe. No, yeah. no, I'm saying that yeah. absolutely does yeah. sort of make a difference. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, let's see here. Uh, Jordan Simon says, "Do you give precedence to people who you have personally reached out to with an open invitation to send you something?" I, it, that's pretty contextual, you know. I mean, if 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 I find an interesting log line because someone was like a finalist in mm -hmm. you know the Austin Film Festival, or or you know I met someone through like USC first pitch or something like that, mm -hmm. um, or even if it's just uh, somehow I they sent me a query letter and I liked their script and not enough to sign them, you know, didn't didn't quite connect to that level, but I at least thought the writing was good enough that I'd be interested to see what they write next and want to track them and see how they grow in their career, then yeah, of course, you know, in, in that case, there'd be an open invitation. Um, I mean, the reality of the matter is I wish I could keep reading everyone that I pass on. I just don't have the bandwidth. Right. right. I think that the answer is probably going to be the same across the board for all reps. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lesson there, which is you really want to make sure that you're not burning reads, right? If you're querying reps and you're not hundred percent sure that your script is good enough to get signed, it's probably not a good idea to do it at that time mm -hmm. because once you get passed on, very difficult to get that same rep to then read you again. Right. And even like, you know, two years later, like I see someone's email and I'm like, didn't I pass on this person? Like, I'm not totally close-minded, but mm -hmm. if I pass on someone, there's an inherent stigma there, right? I know right. I didn't like this enough to sign them the first time. So do I really want to read them again? Mm -hmm. um, I will, but the bar is high, right? right? And so I think the lesson for writers is, and I know this is difficult because to a certain degree you're writing in a vacuum, but you really want to try to feel confident that you're at a point where you're ready enough to get signed or at least get traction off of that, knowing that if you get passed on, difficult to get that same person to read you even you know months or years down the road. And so how do you kind of compensate for that notion of like you're writing in a vacuum? How do you know when you're ready? Yes, friends and family to a degree. Kevin, to your point earlier, you know, I think the tendency of friends and family is to say, this is great. We support right. you, you know, or you should quit and be a doctor. Um, <laughs> one or the other. One or the other, yeah. right. You know, I would say that's where screenplay contests, I think, can have a lot of value. That's where the more prestigious or prominent, you know, screenplay coverage services can have a lot of value. Um, at least they're not perfect, but at least you're getting you know, people that are somewhat credible in the industry, right, giving you their honest opinion. 
And if you put your script in the blacklist and you're getting fours and fives back, you're probably not ready to query people. Mm -hmm. If you're getting eights and nines back, okay, that's, you know, that's a good sign that you're ready. Um, if you're not, if you're not advancing to the, let's say finalists or semifinalists in these screenplay contests, you're probably not ready, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, and to be honest, like, again, I don't mean to like discourage people here, but like, if you're querying me and you're like, Hey, I was an Austin second rounder. Like I love the Austin film festival. Like I'm, I'm a judge and it's a fantastic screenplay contest. Think of how many dozens of scripts, right. Can say that they were an Austin second rounder. It, it's not enough to make you stand out from the pack. Right. Now, if you're a finalist, okay, now you're one of 10 instead of one of a hundred. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's a difference. Yeah. Th that being said, also one other point is like certain genres, right. Are more, um, more likely to succeed in festivals than others, you know? So if you're writing a broad comedy, you're pr unless you're entering a comedy specific contest, you're probably not going to achieve a lot of success right. down the contest path. Right. So I would probably look more to like, you know, putting your ship in the blacklist or working with Coverfly or one of those types of services um, to kind of counteract that inherent bias in, mm -hmm. in the contest space, just like there's an inherent bias in like the Oscar space, right? right? Comedies tend not to win Oscars sucks, but it's the way it is. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to also mention, you had mentioned that like once in a while, if you've gotten a script from somebody and passed and if they send it, submitted to you later and you recognize the name, you may or may not, uh, read it at that point, just because you had already passed on them before. And if you remember them being the script, not being the highest quality, uh, to put it politely. And I will say, having worked at CIA, there is a database, your script gets entered into a database, your name, the script. And oftentimes when you submit it for story analysis, like as, as an assistant, one of the first steps is, well, after getting the release signed, uh, submitting it to the story department, getting a reader that's from the agency to read it and get it back to you, they'll say, hey, this has been, uh, you know, read before, even if it was an earlier draft. Do you want it read again? And only in extreme circumstances would you say yes, if it's a client or for somebody you really want to read. Normally you would just say no, even if it's a different draft, different date, whatever. So be careful you know, like you said, burning those reads um, if you're not ready, if you're not sure that it's it's the highest quality that you can get it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in the days before digital, before my time, you know, it was it was easy to get around that because you'd like change the title and sure. change the page count and, you know, maybe use your middle name and you could get away with that these days where everything's on email and everyone keeps that electronic databases. Right. Very, very difficult, right, right. <laughs> to get around that. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Jack Cross, can you provide example of a good conceptual hook? Hopefully we did with Nottingham. That's something that I think worked, but I don't yeah. know if you have anything in particular. That's Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure John talked about this one as well. But or it, your you road know, trip film, client. too. Yeah, the road, yeah, that was a good conceptual hook. Um, the script that won the blacklist this past year that John and I rep, uh, Headhunter by Sophie Dawson. Hmm. That was a queer letter. I know John's right. talked about that in the past, so I won't get too much into the weeds there, but you know, I would, I would encourage you go, you, anyone can just go to the Blacklist website, download the annual list, just look through the log lines of the, the top 10 scripts yeah, of any smart. given year. Those are, I guarantee you, going to be good conceptual hooks. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Sean C says, can you tell in one page if the writer has talent or do you make a decision within the first few pages whether or not to continue to read a script? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and this is another thing that is it is it ideal to have to judge someone in the first few pages? No, but it's the reality of the business because we're all so busy that I don't have time to read 20, 30 pages and see maybe it gets better in act two, right? Or if it's a pilot, you know, maybe there's a good twist at the end, right? I just don't have the bandwidth to do that. And so the reality of the situation is most people who you send your script to are going, especially early in your career, mm -hmm. right? As you, you know, achieve success, you'll you'll have more 
latitude there. But early in your career, people are going to judge you by the first few pages of your script. Um, I would highly encourage everyone to think of great opening scenes and sequences, right? Whether you're talking feature or TV, no matter what genre it is, open with a bang. Um, because yeah, it, people are going to judge you by that. And mm -hmm. if I'm bored five or 10 pages in, I'm probably going to put the script down. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I have 20 other scripts I'm trying to get to. And so I just don't have time to keep going. Right. And from the other perspective, meaning not from a writer, but from a forest story analyst myself and former agency assistant, I can say that even though I had to read the whole script, I didn't have the luxury to not finish because <laughs> it was my job to read the whole script. I can tell you after about five pages, uh, for the most part, there were exceptions, but very few, very, very few. If the first five plus pages were not good, it would not get better. In fact, they tend to get worse. Uh, but if the first few pages blew me away, I knew that this was something that, and again, having read a thousand scripts, you get the idea of this one's going to be good, this one's not going to be good, with a very, very accurate uh, uh, track record after about five pages, you can tell. Yeah, exactly. You know, right yeah, away. I, I think you're 100% correct. And, and to even go one level deeper, let's say the first few pages, the opening scene is good, um, but let's say you're writing a pilot hmm. and you have a great twist. You, okay, there's a great conceptual hook for this TV series that I thought of. It comes at the end of the pilot. I would encourage you front load that twist, hmm. right? Because even if your script is decent enough to get read for the first five pages, if you're just at this phase of your career where you're querying people, you know, or people are finding you in a contest, right? I, I don't know if they're going to finish your script, right? And right. Certainly, absolutely. when I, as a manager, send that script out to producers, they're probably not getting like the bar is higher, right? So they're probably not getting to the last page. And so, I let me put it this way: there's a difference between the draft that gets you read and the draft that ultimately gets produced, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to think more so for the reader that's in front of you right now not as much the audience that will ultimately see the show, right? Right. They'll worry about, you'll, trust me, any TV show that gets made will go through the ringer in terms of notes and, you know, story development, right? And what do we want to show in episode one versus episode two and all that kind of stuff. If you're just at the phase of your career where you're just trying to get read, front load what's interesting about your concept, front load everything, because the bar is high and people get bored. And when, once you lose them, it is very, very difficult to get them back engaged in the writing that's a great point that's a great point because no matter how great your twist is if they don't get to that point then it doesn't matter it doesn't exactly matter. Yeah. i mean you know it's it's even it's even difficult for me to sell a script mm -hmm. that's value lies on a twist right mm -hmm. because if i have to sell that script and i can't give away the twist in right. like the pitch that i'm you know it's like you don't want to you don't want to sell a script that like relies on it turns out the good guy's the bad guy right, right? well i i can't say that in the pitch or it's going to lose the effect on the page and so how do i sell that then there has to be some something else mm -hmm. right some additional really interesting conceptual hook to get them to read and then that has to be the icing on the cake right like as an example this sixth sense right that's a movie that i, I don't want to give anything away although i'm sure everyone's already seen it but there's a great twist at the end but the movie works even without the twist right mm -hmm. that's the icing on the cake it's about a boy who sees ghosts and, and a, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever Bruce Willis plays, who has to help him with that, right? Mm -hmm. That's interesting enough to get you to read. And then eventually you get to the twist and you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. Right. You know? But yeah. like using the example we had before with Nottingham, if you just said it's about the sheriff of Nottingham, that's not, I mean, yeah, it could be an anti-hero story, but that's not necessarily going to blow anyone away. It's if you don't 
you know, uh, give, right. divulge the twist of, well, but he's also Robin Hood. It's the same person. He feels guilty about taking the money. So to to reconcile his guilt, he becomes Robin Hood. And that's why he's like this this criminal, you know, at, that comes out at night to gives to the poor. Uh, that, that's what sells it. And if you're trying to keep it in, even if it's a great character story on Nottingham, it's that twist that really sells you on it. That makes it unique. 100%. You know, exactly. So yeah. trying to hide that till later because you want to surprise the reader. I think you're going to have uh, a harder time getting something like that. I mean, not to say that it wouldn't, but it, I think you're making it harder for yourself just to sort of, you know, aha, the uh, uh, the reader. Right. To, yeah. To, and to and when that show ultimately gets made, you know, that reveal that they're the same person probably comes in the last scene of the of the pilot. Right. Right. Because right. that's, you know, it's oh, my God, I got to watch episode two. Where does it go from here? Right. Um you know, but when you're a young writer, up and coming writer, trying to sell that as a spec or using it as a staffing sample, uh, you know, it, if people are reading it 10 pages in, okay, this is another Robin Hood thing, mm-hmm. like they're going to put the script down, right? right? There has to be something in that first 10 pages that really grabs them and, and says, oh my God, this is great writing and right. also very different. And I'm really, I'm really engaged in the questions that are being put forth, right? The, the, the plot and character questions. And I got to see what the answers are at the end of the script. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So it's your cold open of Robin Hood escaping villains, escaping the guard or whatever, di- distributing the wealth to the poor. And then all of a sudden there's a switcheroo and it's the sheriff of Nottingham and his soldiers, you know, are looking for Robin Hood. He's like, I think he went that way or something. And it's the same person at that point. It's exactly. like, oh, wait, what, ha- what just happened there? Right. You know, exactly. Like that. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now you you front loaded what makes your script so interesting, right? right. And ten pages, and I'm like, oh my god, like I never saw that twist coming. This is amazing. I got to keep reading. Right. That's the goal. Right. Um, okay. Famous motion pictures. We finally it looks like we got your uh, questions here. There's a couple in a row. All right. So well gonna... done. Persistence pays off. Persistence pays off. So <laughs> I don't know what happened, but we're glad you got your question here. Let's see here. Uh, famous motion pictures. I'm a writer, director, and visual effects artist with a new sci-fi feature wrapping post-production and will have distribution. Well, congratulations for that. Uh, let's see. What would be the best way for someone like me to get the attention of a rep? Well, let's ask a rep. So, Zach? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the answer is different when you're talking to manager versus an agent. Um, I think the reality of the situation is for agents, um, when you're talking filmmakers, it's rare, I think, for, for agents to sign filmmakers prior to the release of that first film, or at least the festival release or something like that. Um, it happens, but that's the exception to the rule. Uh, writers can get signed at any time. You know, that's more straightforward. It's just, here's here's the script. You know, do you like it? Um, in terms of managers, uh, it looks, I mean, you, you if you're a director, right, send them the link, right? Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's the only way to do it. Either you're either asking people to read the script and therefore looking at you more as a writer, or you're sending them the finish, uh, final polished cut and asking them to be as a filmmaker. But that's what has to be done. Mm-hmm. Which, without knowing obviously the uh, specifics of of Famous Motion Pictures' uh, uh, project, would you recommend sending the script, the link, or both? I mean, if you have a final polished cut mm-hmm. and you're comfortable sharing it, the link is going to be more powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're trying to be viewed as a filmmaker. Um, if you're just, again, if you're just trying to get signed as a writer, then the script is sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and in terms of distribution, does mentioning that specifically in his uh, or her query uh, make a huge difference to you? And if so, what level of distribution is sort of that? 
uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. Have I heard of a distributor? Right. right? Like, <laughs> if it's some distributor I've never heard of, I mean, congratulations for getting it. Obviously, it's still an accomplishment. I don't know if that's enough to, like, that'd be a game changer in mm -hmm. terms of getting someone to watch the film. If it's, you know, if your film is, if you're lucky enough to have your film distributed by, like, A24 or, sure. you know, like, any one of that caliber or even maybe a tier below that caliber that we still know, um, you know, that's, that's meaningful, sure. Mm -hmm. What about online versus theatrical? Because I know a lot of films that uh, I don't want to say are lower budget or, or, or that range getting Netflix distribution, but the payout is very, very low. Netflix just needs, you know, and some of these online platforms just need content to buff up their libraries. So they're willing to take a lot of different things. Um, does that make a difference if it's like, you know, who... I still think it makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's obviously contextual in terms of how much of a difference, mm -hmm. right? But being able to say, hey, here's the link to view my film on Netflix. Right. Sure, that's meaningful. Right. Yeah. Versus like some, you know, third rate streaming service that I guarantee you I don't subscribe to, nor <laughs> right. does anyone else, you know, right. it's less meaningful. Right. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So hopefully that answers your question, Famous Motion Pictures. If you have a follow up, let us know. Uh, Robert Thompson asks, uh, would a writer who has a published book, a novel, adaptation of uh, his script stand a better chance of drawing attention to the script than without it? I mean, if you're querying literary managers trying to get rough as a screenwriter, mm -hmm. then it has to be on the page as a screenplay, right? Um, there are plenty of fantastic literary reps that focus on authors, right? And there's a distinction between the two. There, there's not a lot of overlap from the standpoint of authors don't, uh, reps that, that work with authors don't develop screenplays, reps right. that work with screenwriters don't develop novels, right? That being said, there are a lot of writers who certainly do both. It's just on the rep side, those are typically different worlds. Right. Um, and I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are managers who do both. I can't say that, that I live in that world. Um, Ultimately, I still rep writers that are also authors, but I'm signing them off of the screenplays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And does it make a difference if the uh, the novel had done well? Like, for example, if it had, you know, uh, in, in Amazon had, uh, you know, even self-published novels can be on Amazon and, and, and sell. Uh, I know an author personally who actually was like a number one kids book, but it was a yeah, self-published I mean, novel. The, the, the Martian was at one point a self-published novel, right? right? Or would you yeah. still recommend they go find a literary, meaning a book agent, as opposed to approaching you or approach them separately? Like mention that the, the, there was a number one book, but they don't have a literary agent, a book agent, but here's my screenplay. Yeah. Would that make a difference? I mean, look, I think it's 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 probably so rare right yeah, for no, someone to yeah. like have a top selling book and also be unrepped you right. know like, like if you have a top selling book you're getting repped you're getting sure. a book agent yeah um if you have a book that you know sells 5000 copies you know congratulations that's still an accomplishment that's probably right. not sufficient to say like you know i've got a hit book right i think right. ultimately you're still going to need to you're trying to repped as, as a screenplay you know as a as a movie or tv writer you still need to show it on the page as, right. as, a, as a script. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, KP only yeah. Uh, says, I'm thinking of publishing a novella I've written. I've written a lot of scripts and I'm thinking it could be a way to get attention. Here we go. Is self-publishing worth it or would traditional be better for proof as a writer? I mean, this is a little bit outside of my domain. Mm -hmm. 
I would say however you can get traction, yeah. right? So the self-publishing world is a lot about hustle, right? It's a lot about you manifesting the sales through whatever means you got to do to do that, whether it's having a social media following, mm -hmm. whether it's doing paid advertising out of your own pocket, whatever, whatever that is, right? Um, that's outside of my purview. Um, but to me, uh, you know, I think viewing the experiences of successful self-published authors, I think a lot of them is is a lot of hustle, right? And kind mm -hmm. of making it happen on their own, at least to a point, right? And then eventually you get noticed and then someone else comes on board. Um, you know, as far as like the carryover between that and someone in my, you know, my position re representing screenplay, uh, film and TV writers, mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of overlap there. I think ultimately it still has to be again on the page. Yeah. Right. Right. And, uh, in terms of getting, uh, a book published or getting a rep for a, a, a novel, it's equally as hard. Uh, as getting a rep for a screenplay or script, I do yeah. think that they're more likely to read, which is strange. I think uh, I, I've, from what, what I've seen, I've because I've spoken to some book agents, um, and I worked at CAA, so we obviously had a book department. But you, it's the the process is substantially longer. Like if they like your your logline or you know like your your synopsis for your your book. And everyone is different. They'll ask you to send, oh, send me a three-page synopsis, send me a four-page synopsis, send me a 12-page synopsis. And if you don't have that particular length, it becomes difficult. And also, then, then you go into a slush pile if you're not recommended by someone or they're not super interested. It'll go into a slush pile, and it could take six months or longer for them to actually read it. So uh, it's not any easier yeah. to get a book published um, than, than it is, or even get representation as an author than it is getting a rep representation as a screenwriter or TV writer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a, an interesting shortcut method that mm -hmm. not a ton of writers or authors take, but might be interesting is, um, you know, there was an old school way of doing this where magazines, right, would oh, yeah. publish a chapter at a time, right? And even some of the greatest authors in history had their novels published like kind of chapter by chapter in magazines. Okay, what's the equivalent in the digital age? Uh, short stories, right? Yeah. And if you're writing a novella, that's not that much different than writing a short story. There's tons of online publishers of short stories. Now, are you going to achieve fiscal success doing that? No, but if the goal is just to get it out there and try to get noticed or right, be able to say, hey, here's a link in a reputable publication, mm -hmm. then maybe that's a way of, of doing that. Yeah, no, that's smart. Uh, let's see here. Um, Lucas Kendall, does Bellevue have a database of submissions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want anyone hacking it in my database. Uh, I, no, no, I think it's just in the sense yeah. if, I, if, you know, if somebody yeah, submits we'll, now yeah. and it's, it's not up to par, will you blacklist them? I think that was more the question. Well, I, I mean, I'm never blacklisting anybody. Not you per se. Like, yeah. You know, a, a jerk or, you know, oh, sure. every week. There's a couple of people that literally submit to me every single week. And yes, I blacklist them because they're mm. ridiculous and, and clearly something, you know, not right is that right, on there. Right. But, um, I mean, look, the easy answer is we're on Gmail, right? So, you know, you, you type in someone's oh, right. address on the Gmail search bar and you can see every time they've reached out to you. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and, that's, and that being said, we also keep a database. Yeah. Right. And that's to your point yeah. is that it's very easy to keep track of conversations with people uh, nowadays that it's going to be very difficult to slide something through that, that you know, uh, yeah. may not have been possible 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um Let's see here. Uh, Shortkill72 says, if you like a writing style, but not necessarily the script they submitted, do you encourage the writer to submit again when they have something new? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, 
it's a rarity, but yeah, I would say there are certainly a number of occasions where I've enjoyed something about the writing where the sum of the parts wasn't quite enough to, you know, cause me to engage for whatever reason, mm -hmm. but there's something there that I gravitated towards. And in that case, I mean, I would just tell the writer like, Hey, I, I'd, I'd love to track your writing and leave the door open send me the next thing that you've written. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's, I, I do find it annoying when I say that, and then the next day it's like, here you go, here's something else. Right? Right. Well, clearly this is something older that's probably not as good as the one you mm -hmm. sent me, or you would have sent that one in the first place, right? Right. Um, so to me, the proper procedure there is if someone says, for any rep, if you send it to them and they say, hey, I'm passing on this one, but you know, let's leave the door open or some variation of that, my advice is wait until you've actually done the work and have something better than what you sent them the first time mm -hmm. in order to re-engage. Gotcha. Um... Todd Klinger says, what are some of your all-time favorite movies? I mean, um, my tastes are super eclectic. Uh, I, I like everything from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Casablanca, The Godfather, Dr. Strangelove, to like, you know, more modern stuff like Inception and mm. um, Moonrise Kingdom and The Wolf of Wall Street. And I mean, I could go on and on. Um, airplane you know the marx brothers charlie chaplin i mean my you know kurosawa like i could go on and on and on but um i think for me like that's one of the reasons why i'm in this business is because i spent way too much time as a kid watching all sorts of movies going to blockbuster watching tcm and amc you know sunday mornings when i probably should have been doing my homework but um i don't know my, my tastes are pretty varied mm -hmm. yeah um, so we are almost out of time here, but I wanted to sort of wrap it up with, do you have any specific, or maybe what is your best advice for those emerging writers out there, screenwriters, TV writers out there, even filmmakers, uh, trying to break in, trying to land uh, uh, a, a rep to help them on their journey? Yeah, I, I want to be hard on writers for a second, but mm -hmm. also try to spin it in a positive direction. Um, I'm gonna be hard and say good enough is not good enough, mm. right? In a world where there's a million screenwriters on that Reddit mm. and in a world where there's hundreds and hundreds of writers every single week querying reps, right? A script that feels like, oh yeah, this is pretty good is mm. not good enough to get you read and get you reps, you know, and, and ultimately get you produced or get you staffed. It's gotta be great. And, and to try to spin this into positive, I would challenge everybody what is the script that you write that's going to be great right and and it's okay if you're not there yet right writing is a process i mean they say what ten thousand hours to become an expert how many writers you know try to try to get wrapped up for like one or two scripts right mm -hmm. it's, it's probably not there yet i mean every once in a while there's you know a savant right or like a tarantino who by the way even his first movie he burned literally right mm -hmm. no one's seen that right mm -hmm. my um, best friend's birthday for 99 of us that yeah exactly right for 99% of us that don't knock it out of the park the first go around, that's okay, right? Continue to grow, continue to improve your craft, but be cognizant that if you go out with your material too early, I think it's it's not gonna be a great outcome. And, you, and I don't want people to get discouraged because of that. And so I would say you have to have that internal understanding, right? And that confidence that what I write and what I'm taking out is not just good. It's not just yeah, a staffing sample. It's great, right? And it's going to be better than 99% of the scripts that go out there, right? Because unfortunately, that is the bar. There's a lot, a lot of people who want to do this as a job. And if you're going to get paid to do this and have a, have a sustainable career, right? You have to be in that top 1%, right? It is like, I mean, I don't, 
I don't want to call us athletes, but it's similar in that respect, right? The people who have a career in the NBA, it's not just anyone who tries to play basketball. Mm -hmm. It's the top one tenth of 1% of their respected field. And so again, like I would encourage everyone, keep working, keep practicing, improve your craft, and hopefully you can get there. But my advice is you have to have that um, that knowledge and understanding that if, if you feel like you're not there yet, you're probably not, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting how a lot of film, you know, emerging filmmakers and writers will look at a bad film and go, well, mine is better than that. And not realizing a couple things. One, maybe it, it may or may not be, but a lot of hands go into making a film. No one strives to make a bad film or mediocre film. And a lot of hands go into it. And sometimes, yeah, it just the chemistry doesn't work or whatever. Uh, I've read a number of scripts. Now I'm not going to name any specifically that the script was really good. And the film turned out not quite as good um, yeah. just due to whatever, whether the network notes or whether it's the filmmaker, whether it's whoever, the, an actor causing problems, budgetary reasons, any whatever. So it can be a challenge. And to assume that that your script is better than that's so therefore you should have a career i think is not necessary you should look inwards more and say well how can i make this better and get it to the point not like well mine's better than that so i should be fine <laughs> right yeah I, that is absolutely fantastic point and i think you also have to have the knowledge that your competition is not every movie that's ever been made before right the competition is all the other queries that are being sent out in a given week right or entries right. to a given contest you mm -hmm. know and so what you got to do is be better than those. Right. And I also want to, to say, going back to your sports metaphor, it's funny because if you can go on YouTube and um, there was a, a player who played for USC. I don't remember his name, um, but he played for the Boston Celtics. Brian Scalabrini. That's who it was. And like now he's out, he's been out of the league for, I don't know, six, seven, eight, ten years, something like that. A long time. Uh, and was a bench player. I mean, his career average is like 2.7 points a game or something like that. And he had a long career, but it was, you know, as a, as a bench, near the end of the bench, so to speak. But he played in the NBA. And he'll get hit up all the time on Twitter or wherever saying, oh, I could beat you. I was a college player and I should have played in the NBA. You're a joke kind of thing. And there are videos of him, not, not shot by him, but other videos where he would go to a gym, say, fine, let's play. And again, seven or eight years out of the NBA would cream these people would totally destroy these people who say, I'm better than you. I, I could beat you. You're the end of the bench. Whatever. You were a joke. And he would just demolish these people because he's still an ex-NBA player, period. Right? Yeah. I, I totally watched those videos. Yeah. Shout out Brian Scalabrini. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy to, to you know, you have to look at it from uh, an objective person, uh, perspective. Or, again, looking at um, that movie Invincible. Do you remember that movie with... Uh, uh, Mark yeah, Wahlberg playing sure. that. Uh, I don't remember the name of the, the actual player who tried to make through tryouts. I, Philadelphia Eagles were so bad that year where if you haven't seen the movie, uh, they held open tryouts as a publicity stunt. And one player actually made the team from these tryouts. Um, but the the tryouts showed all these out of shape guys, all these who legitimately thought that they had a shot to make the Philadelphia Eagles football team. And they just were gassed after about 15 minutes. And, and it was just an absolute joke. And I'm not saying that, that professional writers are so, you know, i.e. working writers are so much better than you per se. But I think you have to look at it in those terms of, you know, realistically look at yourself at how close are you to that point? Maybe you're there, maybe you're not, but if you go out and, and, and before you're ready, you don't want to be burning those reads when you're not ready yet. 
that that exactly place. yeah and and even you know the lesson for someone like brian scalabrini right even the person at the end of the bench he's still working really really hard every day for years and years to improve his craft right, right? and so you know i think yeah to a certain degree there's something some nebulous thing called talent right that either you have it or you don't mm -hmm. but um, that's a pretty wide gap, right? And, yeah. and I think, you know, there's a lot of people with talent who never make it as writers because they don't have that work ethic and dedication. There are a lot of writers who, you know, aren't, aren't as talented, right? But do have sustainable careers because they work really, really that's hard. That's true. And, and so, you know, I would encourage anybody out there listening, um, assuming you have at least some talent, like you can do this, right? But, you know, it doesn't happen without all that preparation and all that kind of, external awareness right mm -hmm. that this is a business and that you need to meet certain criteria in order to turn the odds as much they're always going to be stacked against you but to turn them as much into your favor as you possibly can right absolutely and actually todd Klinger and kp only said vince papale that's that's who it was for the philadelphia there you go. yeah there you go yeah uh, and we have one last question that just popped in here i'm just going to throw it to you um john often says that one script is all it takes for him to be convinced he should sign a writer do you feel the same way or do you prefer two or more polished we talked about that earlier but i'll let you sort of throw yeah in. I, one one great script is all you need it is yeah. so rare to find that one great script and write. i mean literally in a given year i'm sure the average rep will probably read like i don't know under a dozen, let's call it, let's call, say that under a dozen scripts that blow them away enough to say like, I want to sign this person right. or somewhere. It's like, I read it. It's like, okay, it's good. I'm on the fence. You know, maybe this isn't something for me to take out, but there's a good voice there. I want to meet them. But like, if something's going to blow you away where you're like, by, by the time you get to like the midpoint, you're like, I want to sign this person. Mm -hmm. It's super rare. So, I mean, you know, easier said than done, of course, but if you can attain that, um, you know, that level of, quality with your script i do believe that you will get noticed and, and eventually make it right and uh, just echoing that uh, having been again a story analyst a reader for two years at a, a production company at warner brothers i can say that over those two years i probably read about 800 pieces i mean scripts manuscript you know advanced manuscripts all that kind of stuff and of that during that time period there were maybe six to eight that i recommended and maybe another 12 to 20 that I, rec that I considered. Um, I do have to say that almost every single one of those sold, not to us, but they did sell. So uh, I was sort of right on there, but it's so much fewer than you think. I mean, again, yeah. 800 and, and scripts. And do, doing the math, right? That's, yeah. that's under 1%, you yeah. know? So that's the bar, you yeah. know? I, I mean, I, I know, they have a database. I've, I've read probably about 2,000 scripts. Mm -hmm. I under three years as a manager, just, just in terms of submissions. Right. Um, how many people have I offered? It's, it's under 1%, yeah. you know, I mean, I'd, I'd like that to be higher, but sure. we all have limited bandwidth in terms of first reading. And then, you know, the time that I'm going to devote to every client. I mean, one thing I love about working at Bellevue is we're very hands-on when it comes to creative development. I, obviously John has talked about this in the past, but I love the fact that I, I get to devote so much time to every individual client. And I'm so passionate about every single one there's a consequence to that, right? Which is I can only work with so many people. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Jack Cross will wrap it up. Thanks, Kevin, for another great live stream. Thank you, Zach, for your time and sharing your ins uh, insights. Um, so yeah, thank you, Zach, for coming on. I appreciate it. I'm glad we finally got you, the last member of the Fantastic Four, uh, the Bellevue Fantastic Four on the podcast. So it's been, uh, it's been great. So I appreciate it. 
we did it. All four of us. This is like our version of the EGOT. Now yeah. We're, we're good. We can like hang it in the mantle. Yeah. Uh, and follow Zach on Twitter if you don't already. It's at ZuckerZach. So it's his name reversed. Um, and thank you all for listening and sharing part of your Saturday with us. We hope it was helpful. Uh, and we'll see you next Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern for another live stream Q&A with Lit Manager Daniel Seco. Um, thank you, Zach. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you next week.